Oh, well, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you this Sunday. And as we get underway, I want to get to business really quick because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So uh, it is the time of month where we try to make sure we keep you up to date with the finances. Uh, Ella was kind of mentioning about that as far as we're still rolling forward with building things and plans and the city and everything else. And, and more originally, we were thinking that we might be breaking ground like in early May. It's looking now it's going to probably be somewhere in the June category because everything moves slow, all right? But we're still patient and God can teach us patience in the midst of that. So we continue to give you kind of updates on the building and updates on the finances. And so for the month of February, we have some numbers here. The uh, general fund was 47,000. The building fund was 24,000. Total was 72, so that's a little down from the previous month. It was about 90,000 in January, 72 in February. We're really trying to hit that 90,000 every month number, even just for the lender and that kind of thing, so we want to keep you updated. But for all of that, still right now as a church, we have $3.6 in the bank, which is just miraculous. Every time I see the number, it just my jaw drops a little bit. Like, how did we get there? It's like fish and loaves all the time. So um, just a big, big blessing. Thank you, as was shared earlier, for all of your faithfulness and giving. Uh, again, it's very humbling to just watch this entire process unfold. For us as a church over the last, really, 11 years, just to see what God is up to and how he continues to move and shape and adapt us so that we might be more faithful to the purposes of his kingdom. And his kingdom is what it's all about, right? Like Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, it says, the good news of the kingdom. There's something about this kingdom that changes everything. And the kingdom is going to be the subject matter of the day. But I want to just be really upfront with you, really open. Um, um, this was a message where as I was trying to work on it this week, I was just like, man alive. I don't want to go do this one, right? And not for any bad reason. Here's the thing. There are some like what we're doing with Luke is what we call exposition, right? So we're just going verse for verse and we're walking through the whole thing. And sometimes you come to a section where you're like, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to make uh, any cogent sense or cohesive thought in this? Because it's just going to be kind of tricky. And that was sort of today's section. It's a story that Jesus tells, and it's a story that's a little tricky, and then you try to figure out how do you apply it based on how the original audience heard it, and there, all this stuff. And so I wrestled and procrastinated all the way through the week. And then finally, I'm like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show them, like it's algebra when you were in high school. Remember your algebra teacher would say, I don't want just the answer, you have to show me your work. I have to show you my work, all right, to get to the answer today so we can understand how we can read the story and how we can interpret it for the day. So that's what I'm going to try to do in a humble, hopefully, and uh, clumsy human way, but hopefully we'll by the end go, oh, that's what we can take away from this. So that's what we're going to do. So right now I want to give us some space for a moment here just so you can settle your heart silently, just kind of pray to the Lord to prepare you for today, and then I will go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into the section at hand. Jesus, you are good to us, and you are good to us on the days that 
we're really nailing it out of the park, and you're good to us on the days where we are very human, very frail, very much struggling in our humanness. You are good to us, right? That is the nature of your grace. That is the nature of this good news that you brought into the world, that you rescue us, and then you impart to us your righteousness, your position, even though we don't do it uh, well or even live up to the expectations well, that's what you do for us. That's what makes your grace so amazing. And so I pray that even today as we're looking at this story that you tell that uh, has some barbs in it at times, has some things that force all of us to wrestle, I, I pray in that we will be moved and inspired though to your greatness, to your kingdom greatness, and that your kingdom will be what motivates us and what we are passionate about in our lives and that we will want that to infiltrate all of the nooks and crannies of where we live life because we're confident that life is better with you. Right? Every facet is better with you. And so I pray that we lean hard into you and that from that we are empowered by you to do things for you. And so Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to look at your story and to look at your heart. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, like I was saying, kind of a tricky little section that we're going to be dealing with. Now, to remind us of what's going on, we have been on a journey, right? We've been on a journey with Dr. Luke in this whole unfolding story of the person of Jesus. And throughout this unfolding story in Luke's gospel, what he continues to do in this sort of eyewitness-type accounting, right, almost like an investigative journalist, is he's revealing to us, and originally to his friend Theophilus, how Jesus is a scandalous God, right? So we believe firmly that Jesus is God, and we believe that when Jesus came into the world that he did, that world, the Jewish world, had ideas of God, perceptions of God, anticipations about God, and then Jesus rolls in and disrupts all of that right? All the things that they were holding dear, he kind of lays waste. And all the pre uh, kind of supposed ideas of what they anticipated in their coming chosen one Messiah, he dismantles all of that. And so there's a lot of friction throughout the Gospel of Luke because it's sort of like Jesus is on this island and the Jewish population is virtually on a different island, and so as we go on the journey, you keep seeing things are getting compressed and the pressure is building. And now we're at a point where the pressure is going to be undeniable because the journey has been from where Jesus started his ministry in Galilee and now he's moving toward the capital city of Jerusalem. And as he gets there, the lines will be drawn and sides will be chosen. And in that worldviews will clash, and the old worldview is going to be laid waste, and the new worldview is going to come with potency, right? All of that is happening. So it's old wineskins and new wineskins, and the clash is underway, and in that systems are going to rise and fall. All of that's happening as Jesus comes to the city. But here's the thing that we have to keep in mind as we're studying Luke's gospel. When that happens, all of that clash and battle and division. It's coming from people who are doing this in the name of God, right? So both sides, Jesus and the Jewish heritage, they're both operating in the name of God. And the Jewish heritage is claiming to be the people of God. But in this, what we see is they're going to reject the person of God 
in the city of God because when God shows up to the city, they look at him in the face and they go, no, no, you're, you're not playing by our rules. You're not what we anticipated. You're not fulfilling our expectations. We don't want you if you're God because we have our version of God that's more important than who you are, Jesus, as you are claiming to be God, right? There's a weird tension there. So, in part, why this is so challenging, especially for today's subject, is that what we need to do is to do our homework, and we need to start thinking for this particular story that Jesus tells. We need to think like first century Jewish people in that environment, and we need to hear Jesus' words as first century Jewish people because they're going to read, understand, and interpret what he's saying differently than maybe we will. And that's understandable. In fact, as a little sidebar for just a second, one of the things that's just simply true for us is that we all, when we approach the Bible, we're reading this through a series of lenses. It's just kind of the nature of how the world works, right? So, for example, I'll use myself as a certain kind of example. When I read the Bible, I am reading it through a lens that is Protestant. In other words, I'm not Catholic. I'm not Eastern Orthodox. I'm Protestant. So that's going to cause me to read the Bible in a certain way. I'm going to see certain themes based on my Protestant kind of heritage, and that kind of locks me in. So I'm going to do that. Additionally, I am a post-enlightenment human being. So we went through the enlightenment, and from that we have certain grids by which we understand the Bible and we read the information. And, and, and even if you think about like Genesis 1 through 3, because we are on this side of Darwinism, we read Genesis 1 through 3 kind of differently, and we have different debates about it because of that. But people before that had a different framework, right? That's just a part of the lenses. I'm an evangelical. And that is a certain set of lenses. And then I have a certain Christian tradition. For me, theologically, I go into this camp called Calvinist. And because of that, I read through a certain grid or lens in relationship to that. I'm an American, right? When you talk to Christians from other parts of the world, they see different nuances in stories than we do as Americans because we're shaped by our environment. And then, of course, you have the personal filter, which is, I remember when I was raising little kids and I would read a story of the Bible, there would be something that would stick out to me because I was in that phase of life, and now I have all adult kids, and I'll read the same story and something else kind of jumps out at me, right? You understand all of this. We all have filters, a series of filters. And I'm not saying those filters are bad or wrong. That's not at all. Just we're being honest, right? So in light of that, we need to to kind of put on a new filter for today, which is we have to think like them back then when Jesus tells the story that he does. We have to slide into their sandals for a minute. And with that, we have to absorb their assumptions. We have to perceive their anticipation to grasp Jesus' message. And so here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to get us into that space to go, how did Jews see themselves and from that, then, why were they struggling with Jesus so much? Because I think that's a fair question, right? Like, why did they seem to reject him so strongly when these are allegedly God's chosen people and they're the ones that had an Old Testament and all of these things? What's the problem? Well, here's the first thing you have to understand about the Jewish population um, and, and the framework that they're operating in. They, as a collective whole, they saw themselves as God's chosen people, God's elect people, and what that means is just ex de facto, by default, they saw themselves all as saved. 
right? Like in our world, we talk about there's believers and disbelievers, there's saved people, and then there's lost people. But for the Jewish people as a whole, they looked and they're like, wait, we're children of Abraham. We're saved. All of us are saved. We're the elect. We're the chosen. See, that's a different kind of framework, but you've got to understand that. So as Jesus is rolling in, the assumption that they all have is that they're all on the same page, they're all saved in God, and they're all basically going to heaven one day. Like, that's the way they see it. Now, weirdly enough, right, when you read through the Old Testament, that idea of heaven and hell, you don't see that architecture there so much. There's this place called Sheol, but kind of that's just where we go when we die because we're all Jewish people, and that's what happens. In fact, even right here, I have my ESV Bible app open, and if I go to a search and I type in the word hell, it doesn't even come up till the New Testament. So part of the reason for that is that the Jewish people just all went like, that's not for us, we're not going there, we're all saved people. Right? So, so now Jesus is rolling in and he's saying some different stuff, and this is really throwing them off because they're just under the assumption, we're all in. Now with that, there would be some that are in good standing, and some that are in poor standing. And if you were in good standing, it's because you were keeping the law, you were following all the ceremonial rules, you had right dietary prescriptions, and that puts you in good standing. You would be in bad standing if you didn't follow the dietary rules, you weren't obeying the law, you weren't those things. But even that, that bad standing, it wasn't so much that they said, oh, you're in bad standing, so when you die, you're going to go to hell because you're not saved. That's not the way they interpreted that. They're like, you're in bad standing, you're outside of the community of faith, you're not among the people of God, but they weren't thinking so much in terms of this, like, lost and saved, insider, outsider, in the eternal sense. It was more in the practical sense for them. So that is their framework, so then you can understand just how deeply jarring it is when then Jesus walks into the environment because he only does ministry among the Jewish people, a few Samaritans, and an occasional Gentile that comes into his path in the, the region of the Jews. Like, he's doing all of his ministry there, and now he's rolling in and he's talking about some are going to hell, and some are going to heaven, and some are truly outside eternally, and some are inside eternally, and, and all of you who think you are doing the right prescriptions, you may be missing everything about this, you can understand why then the people at times were so perplexed or so frustrated at Jesus. Because he's now operating in models that they can't quite grasp. See, it reminds me of uh, pastors that I know that are like in Missouri and Texas that I talk to, and they say, you know, Matt, here's the challenge we have. Everybody in Missouri thinks they're saved. Everybody in Texas is a Christian. And from that, they say, what we have to do is we have to get them unsaved to save them, right? Because everybody just assumes it. Well, that's, Jesus is in Texas. He's in the Middle Eastern Bible Belt when he's doing his work, right? Everybody thinks they're in. And the ones that most think they're in are the ones that are in the good standing. And now Jesus is saying, oh, well, here's the deal. You think you're godly, you think you're good, you think you're glory-bound, but he says things like this. Your father is the devil. That's what he says to the religious leaders. He tells the religious leaders, when you make disciples, you make them twice the sons of hell as yourself. And this is so bad, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to somebody else. Can you understand why they're a little frustrated? Why they see him as not a representative of God? And so why in the name of God... They are looking God in the face and opposing him. See, that's all the tension that is unfolding in the gospel of Luke. And then this spills over even then to this idea of the kingdom. 
right? They were anticipating a kingdom. They were anticipating a king. Now Jesus is rolling in, and he's promoting ideas of kingdom that are antithetical to what they anticipated from their king and their kingdom. So again, this is kind of just by way of reminder, but, but here's their kingdom vision, that one day they will finally be in charge, and they will have a nationalistic identity where they are the chief nation on earth and all their foes, all those sinful Gentiles, they will now bow a knee to Israel because Israel will have a king. And that king will come with sword and it's stripped in blood, stripping in blood, and, and he's going to deal with all the tyrants and all the, the evil ones outside of Israel and he's going to throw punch the Caesar and you name it, right? They're just anticipating just this whole carnage scene of vindication and glory from their coming king and their coming kingdom. And then Jesus rolls in. And he is talking about a kingdom of freedom and a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of joy. And he's going to talk about that going into the very city that they see as being the capital of this promised new realm. But then he's going to talk about a kingdom that is so radically different. And he's been doing that. And he's going to talk about an ascension to the throne that is so incredibly unthinkable. One where their king is beaten and mocked and slaughtered. It's not normally the way you ascend to a throne. But he's going to do all of this in such a way that it's so unfathomable that they just can't wrap their minds around what his kingdom is in comparison to what they assume their kingdom should be. So with that as the backdrop, we go into chapter 19, verse 11. It says, The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would be right away. Now, I want to be clear about this. Um, again, we have to think like them. Uh, in chapter 17, Jesus has already said the kingdom's underway, right? He says, hey, where I am, the kingdom's happening. And he's been making that point throughout the Gospel of Luke, right? As the demons are being driven out of people, he's like, that's the proof that the kingdom has arrived. That's where the light is driving out the darkness. And so the kingdom began with his ministry. So he's not trying to contradict himself now and say, I know it said it began, but it didn't really begin. No, he's dealing with their presupposition about the kind of kingdom, right? So, so they don't misunderstand what's going on. He, he wants to articulate a point of view. And so here's what it fundamentally was. When the Jews thought the kingdom would start, what they envisioned was shock and awe, right? They thought that the way it all ends, in the future even for us, that's the way it would begin. That's the way they envisioned it. So this is Jesus on white horse with a sword conquering enemies. That's the way they thought it would start. But what Jesus is trying to do is say, no, no, it doesn't start that way, and it doesn't advance that way. This, the way the kingdom starts is as a small seed, right? And it's this tender shoot that just gently presses through the soil. And in Mark chapter 4, he says it imperceptibly grows over the course of time. But it's bringing real transformation. If you just stare at it, it's like watching grass grow. But if you step back over 2,000 years, you see it's changed things. It's moved through the world. It's changed people's lives. It's changed the course and direction of the human condition. All of that has been true with the kingdom, so that's how it unfolds. And so he's trying to help them again see, wait, the way you envision this kingdom and the way I'm going to unfold it, two very different 
things. And that's going to then drive varied responses, right? But it's going to drive varied responses from people, and this is where I want you to hear me. It's going to drive varied responses from people that all think they're on the same page. It's going to drive varied responses from people that all think they're honoring God in the process. Right? And so this is why Jesus is going to then tell the story that he does, because he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people that think they're saved, think they're God's chosen, think they're safe simply because their heritage and lineage. They all are waiting for a kingdom. They all want their king. Whether they be in good standing or poor standing, they would all stand with their king, or so they think. And so Jesus then says, okay, let me tell you a story. He said, verse 12, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver. And he said, invest this for me while I'm gone. But the people hated him and they sent a delegation after him and they said, we don't want him to be our king. Well, after he was crowned king, he returned and he called the servant to whom he had given the money and he wanted to find out what their profits were. So he pulls back together all 10 of the servants, but the story then just talks about three. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made 10 times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little that I entrusted you with and so you will be governor over 10 cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money, and I made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You'll be governor over five cities. But then the third servant brought back only the original amount of money, and the master said, I, he said to the master, I hid your money, and I kept it safe. I was afraid, because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops that you did not plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your words condemn you. If you knew that I am a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on that. Then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine who don't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. And then after telling the story, Jesus went toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of the disciples, which is the weirdest way to end that. Right? It's like, off with their heads! The end. <laughs> Going to Jerusalem, right? What do you do with that story? Can you see why I was procrastinating all week? Right, because this is the challenge of a parable, right? Or, or this idea of almost like an allegory of types. It's because you start going, okay, well, I think Jesus is the king, so does Jesus steal, and does Jesus rob, and does Jesus just plunder, and then he loves to see people executed? Is that what I'm supposed to do with this? And, and so it gets really, really complicated as far as how do we understand this story? So I'm going to see if we can try to get to the core of it here a little bit, but there's a couple of things I want to say in advance of that, right? So everything's about showing you the homework. The first is, don't confuse this story with the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, which is a story about talents, right? He tells a story about uh, a man who gives different talents to three of his servants, and by talent, I don't mean like a skill set, like, hey, you can juggle, you know, it's not that talent. 
it, it, it's a it's a it's an amount of money. So a talent is about 6,000 days wages. So to one he gives five talents, to one he gives two talents, to another he gives a single talent. And, and, and in that story, they're supposed to do stuff with it, but they don't. And from that, you know, one of the guys gets in trouble for not doing what he's supposed to and, and everything else. But that's not a parallel to this story. That story has a different function, different messaging. There's a whole different set of things behind that that, again, I would love to show you all the homework on it, but then it would eat up about another 10 minutes of our time. And so if you just compare the two, you see differences, right? This story has 10 servants. That story has three. This one is the equal division of all of the monies. The other story, it's different talents to different people, all that. So you just got to understand, don't take that story and make it this story. Different stories, right? The other thing about the story you have to understand is that while it's kind of a fictitious, allegorical kind of story that he's telling here, a parable, it is rooted in some history that was familiar to them, all right? So he's borrowing something that had recently happened. So if you remember when Jesus was born, there was a dude named Herod the Great, right? He was the one in charge, and he was known as the king of the Jews, right? And, and when he died in 4 BC, he left his estate to his son Archelaus, and Archelaus then was supposed to become king of the Jews. But he doesn't just automatically get that label, so he has to then travel to the Caesar, and the Caesar there will then ratify that Archelaus is now king of the Jews. He can come back to Israel, and he can be king over the Jews. But the Jewish people resented that anybody other than their own would be their king. And so during that time, when Archelaus goes to get conferred with the title of king of the Jews, 50 delegates of, of, of Jews went also to Rome and petitioned to not let that happen. And because of that, because they couldn't stand the guy, they couldn't stand his dad, they couldn't stand the occupation, anything else, Caesar actually listened to that. And while Archelaus remained to be kind of a ruler of the region, he didn't get the title king of the Jews. Caesar said, no, you can't have that title. And so from that, the Jews were like pleased because for them, what are they longing for? A true king, God's chosen king. They're looking for the king who is the son of man, according to Daniel. They're looking for the king who is one like the son of David, according to their history and, and all of their foreseen prophecies, right? That's the king that they want, right? That's the king that they're longing for. And certainly at this time of year, because Jesus is going to Jerusalem toward the Passover celebration. And what's the Passover remembrance? It was that God had once delivered the people from their enemies and their oppressors. And so every time Passover rolls in, they're thinking, that's right, we're going to have a king that comes again, and he's going to start a kingdom that is ours, and he's going to rescue us from all of these problems. We can't wait for that king. We can't wait for that kingdom. We can deal with Rome, deal with our enemies, and we can be on top as it's meant to be. That's what they want, right? So then from that, Jesus teaches this story. And then they're hearing in this story different things, right? So what is the point then of the story? Well, the first is what we noted. Jesus is the king that brings his kingdom. So what they've been wanting is who he is, and it's what he's doing. They wanted a rule, and they wanted a realm, and he's bringing a rule, and he's bringing a realm. But as I keep trying to get in our minds here, his kingdom by definition, is radically different than their kingdom by definition. Both are doing it in the name of God. Both are looking at God's word, the Old Testament. But one is damnably wrong. And one is divinely right, right? And so that will be the tension, right? 
but they're both doing it in the name of God, rooted in the word of God, existing for the glory of God, right? But the kingdom that these people want is pretty simple. They want it to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because you know what? They've lost a lot of teeth and lost a lot of eyes to the Romans. They want their enemies to go down. They want to see their enemies get their just desert. They want to see finally where, you know what? They're no longer under boot, but rather their oppressors are under the boot. That is a kingdom to buy into. That is why there have been so many people before Jesus that have been risen up as alleged messiahs that were kind of zealots or terrorists or whatever that had got just trying to stick it to the man in Rome and people went, yeah, that's right. That's what we want. That's the kingdom. That's the kind of king. And then here's Jesus, right? And he does this really crazy thing. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tell you about my kingdom. Right? This is what the plan is. This is what we're all about. He goes, I want you to have certain attitudes that are different than the world. So I want you to be poor in spirit. I don't want you to be nationalistically all proud and aggressive. I want you to be poor in spirit. And I want you to be merciful. And I want you to be meek. I want you to hunger and thirst for true justice. Yes, that's true. But in that, I want you to be a peacemaker in that process. I want you to have purity of heart as you do it. And when you face persecution, here's the craziest thing, man. I don't want you to try to figure out how you can get back at your persecutors, how you can topple your persecutors, how you can stop your persecutors. I want you to take joy as you're being persecuted. I want you to leap for joy. He goes, that's my kingdom. Because when you do that, then you're going to be salt and you're going to be light. And they're going to see your good works and they're going to glorify me in heaven because they see how you're reacting to turmoil and decay and hardship. He says, what I want you to do is when there's a problem between you and somebody else, you go to them and you make it right. And what I want you to do when it comes to my kingdom is I want you to have a purity inside, not just simply in your actions, but in your heart. I want you to value your relationships and value your marriages in such a way that you protect the interior, not just worrying about the exterior. And with that too, I want you to just keep your word. Right? If you say yes to something, you do it. If you say no to something, you do that. Just, just keep your word. And he goes, oh, this is where it gets really hard. What I want you to do is there's these times where somebody's gonna hit you Turn the other cheek to them. There's gonna be times that people sue you, and whatever the decided amount is that you have to pay, double it. And when the government comes along, such as a soldier, and says, carry my gear for a mile, you go the second mile. I mean, I know you want to tell the government to just blow off and mind their own business, but you carry that gear another mile, because you're gonna teach them something about my kingdom when you do that. He says, in fact, yeah, there's a lot of enemies out there. And you're going to have a lot of enemies in your life, but you don't have to return the favor. You get to actually love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, right? Give blessing where they give curses. That's, that's what you get to do. And then when it comes to, like, giving your money, you want to give it with, again, a sincerity of heart. When you pray, it wants to be, you want it to have authentic prayers. When you fast, do it in private. When it comes to money, you store up in heaven more than you store up on earth. You trust God more than you trust your goods because you're seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. And when you do that, everything else is added to you. And then when it comes to judging, oh, by the way, here's a great way to show the kingdom and judging. When it comes to your own planks, your plankedness, man, you really want to be aggressive and deal with that. But when it comes to other people's speckedness, be cautious on how you address that. He says, if anything, just treat others as you want to be treated. That's really the greatest thing. In fact, that's really the whole law and the prophets all rolled together. Now, he says, it's going to be really hard. To do that sermon, to do that kingdom thing, to do that is a narrow way. It's difficult. 
man, if you want to go that route, we'd rather go the earthly way, the human way, the my might, my power, my strength, my ways, my rules, my control. Like, yeah, I totally get that. You can find that in religion and no religion. Uh, all kinds of systems want to do it that way. He goes, but my way's a little different. But when you do that, man, that's real fruit. That's building on a true foundation. See, Jesus' kingdom is foolish. I didn't say that. Paul said that. The cross is foolish. This whole plan looks dumb on paper, right? But that's the way he does it. That's the way he seeks it. That's what he calls us to when it comes to his kingdom. And that's what he's calling those people to in that day. And that is frustrating. Because they had been hurt, kicked, abused. They just wanted to get their just dessert. And now he's pushing this, right? See, why this is so challenging when you're reading the Gospel of Luke, for example is because we have to remember its world. See, when we read Paul, for example, the world cleans up a little bit because there's clear light and there's clear darkness, there's clear saved and there's clear lost, there's clear pagans and then there's clear Christians. All of that is just like the categories are much more clear. But when you're inside the Gospel of Luke, for example, it's much more nuanced because everybody thinks they're saved. Everybody's thinking that they're on God's team. Everybody believes the Old Testament Bible. You know, it's like Jesus' world is that, right? And now Jesus is saying, well, here's the thing. There are the people of God, and then there's godly people. And there's going to be people that hunger for my kingdom, and there's going to be other people that have preconceived the kingdom, and they hunger for that, and it's contrary to my kingdom, but they think it's my kingdom, and there's going to be a problem with that. And so for all of this, Jesus is saying, when it comes to my kingdom, there's three responses. Three fundamental responses when it comes to my kingdom by people who think they're on board with the king and the kingdom. And I think by extension, it means there's three responses for us even as Christians when it comes to Jesus's kingdom. I think there can be within Christianity these same kinds of things, right? So what are the three categories that are in the story? Well, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's actually different groupings, right? So there was the servants that the king gives silver to, and then there was other people that are under the king that don't like him, right? So it's the population that doesn't like the kind of kingdom and king that this is. That's the rebellious kingdom faith. That spirit is, I disagree with it and I won't do it, but all the while claiming it. Because that was the Israelites. That was the Jews of the first century. We're claiming God, we're claiming Bible, we're claiming kingdom, and I don't like anything you're doing, Jesus. Not a bit of it, right? Pharisees were biblical, godly, pro-Messiah, and obedient as they understood it, Right? but it was based on their standard, not Jesus. And so instead of wanting the king on his terms, they want the king on their terms. And so the way you might even see this today, I've been a pastor for like 30 years, and, and I've certainly come across this, where there's people like, hey, I want Christianity, right? But I want Christianity that's more like Christian nationalism. I want Christianity more like Christian religiosity, or I want Christianity like pro-family values or whatever else. But when it actually comes to, well, here's what Jesus calls you to do in life, and it's like, no, 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 I don't want to do what Jesus calls me to do. I just want this thing called Christianity, which sounds really weird, but it's out there. It happens where people go, hey, I'm on board with the label. Just don't ask me to do the actual stuff. I'm going to claim it but I don't want to have to do that nutty, foolish stuff that he expects. Because that's naive, that's foolish, that's silly. No thank you, right? 
Because sometimes there can be a very different thing between the way of Christ and Christianity. There can. And so you can think you're on the team, but you're not. That's part of the danger. The second category is what I would call disobedient kingdom faith. I believe in it, but not enough to fully do it. So, so this is the servant that takes the silver and says, um, uh, my future king is kind of a thug, so I'm not going to invest it. He told me to invest, I'm not going to, I'm too scared. Now let's be clear, don't use all of the analogy against Jesus, like so Jesus is a thug. Jesus is telling a story, right? But that particular individual is like, you know what? I, I, I don't want to risk real faith. So I'll do some things, but I won't do all the things. I'll care for the silver, but I'm not going to try to invest it. Because what if I take a loss? Then I'd be in a lot of trouble there. And so it's just kind of going part way in. And that can happen in our lives too, right? Where we go, you know, I'm going to go in on some commands, some things Jesus expects, but then other things, no, I'm not going to do those things. So I'm picking and choosing as I go, right? Like that can be the tension. In fact, in my own world, this is just the way I kind of separate the difference. It's the difference between believing in and believe. So, I believe in the Bible. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he calls us to. But that's different than I believe. So, he says that I do it. I do the hard things as well as I do the easy things. I do the things that are incredibly uncomfortable as well as the things that are super familiar because I believe that's what he wants me to do. I believe that's the way forward. I believe the world has changed when I own all of those things and not selectively just some of those things. That's the, the, the difference in there, right? Because, you know, some of the stuff that Jesus calls us to is not hard, but other parts are super hard. And over the years, as a pastor, I've certainly sat down with people and said, you know, Jesus says we're supposed to do this. And I've just been, had people look me right in the face and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. I, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Well, I'm not going to do that. You know, Jesus says you should go reconcile with this person that you have this problem with. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, why aren't you going to do that? Because I don't like him. Well, I get it. But Jesus said, no, I don't care. <laughs> you know? There, there's tons of stuff that I have to do that I don't want to do. Trust me. I don't want to do it. But I can't look at everything Jesus says in a functional way. Well, what's the outcome? If the outcome is positive, I'll do it. And if the outcome is negative, I won't. I can't do that. I just have to do it in faith, right? I believe he said it, so I want to do it, right? Doesn't make it easy, but it makes it right. That takes us to the third kind of character in the story, obedient kingdom faith. I do it because I believe it. I do it because I believe it. That was... The servants who said, okay, you told me to invest your money, I invested your money, and then there was payout from that, and then from that they lead ten cities or five cities or whatever else are rewarded for something, right? They just took the king at his word. They did what they were asked to do. And then from that, he gives them reward. Now, putting it into my world here for just a second. I was thinking about my personality. I, I, I've shared with you all before as far as uh, I have my own doubts. I have my own struggles. I've always been really transparent with you about that. There's certain topics in theology I battle with. There's certain arguments I have with God because I don't understand. But can I tell you what I am positive, certain of? Literally, I would happily die for this notion. I am certain that the stuff of the kingdom changes the world. I'm 
boldly certain of that. And I want to be very specific what I mean by that. What I'm saying is when I read the Sermon on the Mount and I read the Sermon on the Plain, I have deep conviction that if we do those things, that changes the world. If we do those things, that's where revival breaks out. If we do those things, that's where lives are transformed and changed. So I have this deep conviction that the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, the fruit of the Spirit, and the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that changes the world. That is the purest display of the power of the gospel, right? That there is real power inside this thing that Jesus communicated 2,000 years ago, and it still can just radically transform the planet when we, we lean into those things. That we make those the highest values in our Christian expression. Jesus, yes, I want to do your backwards, upside-down kingdom stuff of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And as I do it, I'm going to ask your Holy Spirit to forge in me and push through me love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And I'm doing all of that in the definition of love because you've called me to love you and love my neighbor and love my enemy. And so I'm going to look at that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to own that. See, I am certain that that is the kind of person that gets kingdom. It's the person that owns kingdom, does kingdom, is faithful in all the little things. I love the nugget of kind of the message that Jesus has here. To those who use well what they are given, right, the power of the Holy Spirit the conviction of God's word, the saving grace that deals with our sin and imparts to us what we need to do this whole thing, to those who are given this, and then they use it well, more will be given. But to those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. I so badly wanted to just end this message on the high, like, yeah, kingdom! Right? And then Jesus' butt be sober. So I'm still kingdom but be sober he's given us what we need for the task right totally given us what we need and it's crazy backwards upside down ridiculous scandalous but he's given us what we need and my encouragement my plea my passion is that we lean into that lean into kingdom things right seeking, searching, desperate for the Spirit to do it in us so that we can show love of God and love of neighbor in all we do. Let's go and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for super awkward stories, super awkward stories that make us wrestle, that try to force us to get out of our own comfort zones and own perspectives and to understand a perspective that may be foreign or different to us but then teaches a lesson to us. Help us to be your ambassadors with your love, your grace, your passion, that we would weigh what is most obedient to you and we would do so in humility. We thank you for what you've given to us in your name. Amen.